As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Hey, Tracy, you know what I was thinking about recently? <laughs> no, what? <laughs> remember that time? Remember that time you came over and had dinner at my house? Yes, yes. You promised <laughs> that you would make me dinner, and the dinner you made was raw fish. So, really, you didn't make much. I said, I said, uh, I said, is there any kind of food that you don't like? And you're like, well, I'm not really into fish. Yeah, yeah. And you made me raw fish. Thanks, Joe. But I made fish anyway. I, I apologize about that. So I, <laughs> after all this time, like a year and a half later or whatever, a year later, it sort of dawned on me that that was kind of rude. It was pretty good, though. It was um, okay. poke, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. I'm I kind of liked it. I'm glad you liked it. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, that's the perfect uh, seg because today on our podcast, we are going to talk about fish. So this is the podcast equivalent of you serving me fish for dinner. Well, it seems like we have a lot of episodes where I come up with something and then you're like, mm, this isn't really my thing. But they usually turn out kind of well, like that dinner did. So it is kind of like uh, that equivalent, except this time we're not talking about raw fish. What kind of fish are we talking about? Well, let's back up real quickly, because obviously in markets, we talk about uh, commodities all the time. And we talk about, you know, we talk about cattle and we talk about wheat and we talk about corn and Pig other bellies. things. Pork bellies. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, we don't really talk about seafood all that much. Uh, no. Is there a thriving seafood commodity market that I should be aware of? Well, not really. But did you know that there was once sort of a bubble in or a, a gold rush <laughs> in U.S. seafood? In U.S. seafood? I'm really like I'm trying to scratch my head and think <laughs> about which particular seafood it could possibly be. Well, let's uh, let's just cut right to the chase. We are going to be talking about the delicious, one of my favorite fishes, the catfish. And it turns out that there was once a sort of catfish bubble in America. <laughs> I know, hard to believe, right? Well, 
We've seen, I mean, we've seen bubbles in, in lots of things. Um, the Beanie Babies episode we did was one of my True. favorite bubbles of all time. So um, I can believe it. Who exactly is going to be discussing this with us? Well, we have the perfect guest today. Uh, his name is Mike McCall, and he is the editor of the Catfish Journal, a publication on the catfish industry. And he is the author of the book, Catfish Days, From Belzona to the Big Apple, which is all about America's, uh, the time we had a catfish gold rush <laughs> in America. So let's, uh, let's bring in Mike. Mike McCall, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So did I introduce this right? Is it uh, fair to say that there was once a time in America when we once had a, uh, a catfish bubble, so to speak? I, I think that's correct. Um, the way the, the business came on uh, in the 1960s and started growing in the 70s and, and really the 1980s and 90s, there was just a, a, a big heyday in the business. Everybody had to get into it. And, and, of course, the business is mainly in the South, but people were coming from all over the country. And if you look at the statistics, uh, it was just booming and up until around 2000 and then started going down. Uh, so you mentioned that it uh, you know, mostly boomed in the South. I was recently in uh, Mississippi where I had some delicious fried catfish at the uh, Taylor Grocery outside of Oxford, Mississippi. So tell us the story. Why did people get so excited that they felt that they had to get into the catfish business back in the 60s and 70s? Well, it started off slowly and began to pick up some steam. And, and, and honestly, the news media, I believe, was, was a factor because the story was covered as, as a real novelty in some ways. And, 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 and it is a novelty, I guess, compared to other agriculture businesses. But uh, it was covered in all the national media. Uh, there were events in Washington, D.C., and in New York, and the industry started advertising in 1987, and it was a really nice ad campaign, public relations campaign targeted to food editors for people uh, who not, were not familiar with catfish, and that really, it was just like going into second gear in, in a race car. It just hmm. uh, Things really started to pick up. Joe, your choice of topic is going to backfire on you because I want you to know I was born in Arkansas. My grandmother lived there pretty much most of her life. And I remember as a young kid going to some catfish farms and looking at the catfish. We also went to chicken farms, but maybe that's a topic for another episode. Um, <laughs> so, Mike... In terms of the catfish farms, what was the sales pitch? And was it was the sales pitch aimed at, you know, small operators, like small farmers, uh, to get them into the industry? There really was no sales pitch to farmers to get into catfish farming. Uh, they just gravitated to it. And they were looking for something different. Uh, your row crop business was down. And, uh, you know, if you, if, if you had land and a little money... It's an expensive thing to get into, but uh, people just uh, started gravitating to it. Like Reader's Digest has a story on catfish farming in, I think, about 73, and um, millions of people read that. And the, the Catfish Farmers of America uh, office uh, 
one-man office at the time. Uh, phone was ringing off the hook. They got thousands of letters. Everybody wants to get into it. So, so really, people just wanted to get into it. Now, every great boom or bubble has a story, a dream attached to it. And in the case of Catfish, people really thought it was going to become potentially as big as chicken, right? That it was going to be the next great American white meat. People all around the country would just make it a uh, staple of their diets. Right. That's true. Structurally, there's something quite different about the catfish farming industry compared to, let's say, poultry industry, which is a mature, vertically integrated industry. The uh, poultry companies, uh, Tyson's, whoever, they contract with growers to grow the chickens. They have their own processing plant. They have their own feed mill. So it's it's a mar- more of a market-driven industry. Catfish is more of a producer-driven industry because the farmers were growing fish for whoever would buy it from them. And yes, they might own stock in a processing plant. They just kept, kept growing the fish. And that was part of the problem of the bubble because production exceeded demand and especially when your important fish started coming in from Asia at a really low price that um, those markets were lost and that's when things started going downhill. So Mike, before we get to that point, if I was someone in, in Arkansas in say the late 1980s and I was interested in getting into the catfish industry, what would I actually have to do in order to participate? And like, what kind of investment would I have to make? How would I actually begin farming catfish? Great question. Well, you'd have to have a pile of money for one thing and, and some land. When you say Arkansas, are you talking about like the southeastern part of the state? Uh, well, I was uh, born in Blytheville, but my grandmother was in Hope, Arkansas for a long time. I'm glad we're getting into specifics. I wouldn't want to <laughs> have a discussion about the economics of catfish farming in Arkansas without pinpointing the region. Right. Well, uh, what, what you would do back in those days, um, you would talk to people, you would talk to uh, uh, your extension service about the land you own, would it be good for growing catfish? Is the soil right? Do you have plenty of water? Uh, and of course, do you have the money to build ponds? In some cases, you might have had to uh, buy stock in a processing plant, which gave you uh, rights to sell to that plant. There are a lot of factors. Um, there's no saying in the business uh, that you're not going to make any money growing fish. You're going to make your money selling fish. Mm, so, like that. so, so that's kind of something that a lot of people did not think about. Uh, hmm. We'll get into this later, I guess. But, but that whole scenario has kind of changed. Things have uh, quieted down, stabilized in the industry. Those things that really don't happen anymore. Let's get even more specific because our audience is pretty nerdy <laughs> here, and I think they'll enjoy it. So let's talk about how many acres of land you could get, how much, uh, how big of a pond you would need, and the unit economics in terms of the cost of feed for X amount of catfish protein relative to, say, how much that same energy or feed cost would get you with, uh, say, chickens. In the early days, some of these catfish ponds were as large as 40 acres or so, and which proved to be highly inefficient. The industry transcended to... uh, a uh, smaller ponds 
easier to manage. Uh, when I say smaller ponds uh, today, they're 10 to 15 pound, uh, acres, excuse me. The old number I've, that's always been banded about, it's going to cost you about $3,000 per acre to get into the business. Now, that includes building your ponds, forming your levees. And, of course, you're going to need a lot of equipment. You're going to need tractors and trucks. You're going to need uh, aeration equipment to produce oxygen in the ponds. You're going to have to, of course, stock your ponds with uh, small fingerlings that you're going to buy from most likely from somebody else. So... So let's say you stock your, your fingerlings, then, of course, you have to grow them. And in the case of catfish, it's going to take you roughly a year and a half to grow that fish to maturity. You're going to pour in the feed in there, which that's dependent on your grain cost, which go up and down. Sometimes it's been very high, and lately it's moderated. So you're going to be spending all that money, and, of course, on people, too. you got to have people to to run the farm and then um you know in a year and a half or so the world can change uh prices might be down they might be up a little bit uh grain prices will be up and down there are a lot of variables uh, and of course at the end of the cycle you need to sell your fish to a processing plant and the processing plant owner and you might not be on the same page uh, of course, you want to move your fish in an orderly way, uh, but depending on the market, depending on how much fish are out there, um, it, uh, it it can be a really difficult thing to work through. That's what happened around 2000 when the industry hit the highest production ever, and yet the fish prices for the farmer were the lowest in 25 years. So... Uh, Things, things happen. Today, inventories are managed uh, better. Uh, you don't really have that oversupply. Of course, we've lost so much of the, the acreage, but uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's a more manageable situation now. Mike, before we get to the overproduction and the bursting of the bubble, I, I just want to press you on this point because the description you just gave of how to get into catfish farming. It's not a cheap investment, and it's not an easy investment. It sounds like you have to be pretty serious about it. So could you just dive in a bit more into the psychology of the people who got into this industry and whether or not, you know, were there companies or like sales reps that were trying to push them into catfish farming? Um, I don't believe there were actually sales reps. Uh, well, th- there were people during the early growth years, I, g- I guess the processing plants were trying to get people involved in catfish farming because they needed fish. And that that was the dynamic at the time. When things started going better, the bankers started pushing people to get into catfish because in the mm-hmm. South, your row crop prices were really low. And there were people with land, and they wanted to get something better out of that land. And catfish farming, your yield per acre, back in those days, a guy could raise uh, five, 6,000 pounds of catfish for, um, I don't know, but for a year he could, he could sell that much catfish compared to a cotton 
field or soybean field or something, the return was much higher. So that was a real financial incentive to get into it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. It's just a simple matter of people wanting to get more out of their farm. And, and a lot of them were diversified. They continued to do row crops. But here here were some catfish that they could grow and could really churn some money at the time. Um, it's uh, it, it, it was just a, another market to get into for a farmer. I feel like uh, the detail about the uh, bankers encouraging farmers to get into catfish is a sort of crucial classic stop on any bubble. I want to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. And we are back with Mike McCall. He's the editor of the Catfish Journal, and he is the author of the book Catfish Days from Belzona to the Big Apple. We are talking about the time, the true story of when America actually had a, a catfish bubble, mostly in the South. I want to get very soon to the sort of bursting of the bubble. But before we do that, I want to ask you, um, you know, in any in any great boom or bubble or gold rush or whatever, whatever it is, you're always going to find some colorful, larger than life characters who really defined the moment. From your view, who are some of the most interesting people, the prime movers of the uh, of the catfish boom? Well, in the Mississippi Delta, uh, which is a major agricultural area, there were some, some interesting folks who got into that business. But there are also a lot of people who came from outside of the business and thought they could make big money. If, if you recall how I started off the book, Joe, with the group up in New York, Mm-hmm. that uh, decided uh, they could see the growth of the industry, they could see the slick advertising. This is late 80s. They jumped into it, raised $20 million or so, came down to South Texas, built a farm, built a processing plant, and went straight down the tubes. So uh, that was that kind of dynamic going on. Uh, insofar as individuals, uh, I, I have to be careful about mentioning names. Sure. So uh, I'll... Uh, Try to walk around that. All right. um, money was flowing everywhere back in the heyday, and I say the 1980s were probably the heyday up until around 1990s. People were spending money in any way they can, but the profits were so big. Uh, there were lots of parties. There were lots of there were lots of traveling. Uh, there were uh, I, I I don't know how to explain it. It, it was just money was going everywhere and. And it, it appeared to be no end to it, too. And when they looked around one day and realized that they couldn't sell the fish, they didn't have money to buy feed because they weren't selling any fish. And, and then, boom, I guess that's when things started around 2000, started going down, down the hill. So, Mike, what was the exact tipping point for things to go downhill? Was it just overproduction, or was there something else? It was, it was basically two things. Uh, production was overshot the market, and then you had cheap fish from Asia started coming in, uh, from, mainly from Vietnam, uh, some from China, and 
they took over the markets. Uh, normally, when the industry would overproduce, eventually things would tighten up, supply would tighten up, and they'd just keep on going. But this time, they lost sales to the to the restaurant chains, to the uh, food service companies, and it just it just started going down the hill. And and it took ten years to work out those inventories in the pond, and mm-hmm. people drained their ponds. They, they couldn't do it anymore. Feed prices got very high, and they just couldn't they couldn't hold on. That's why we've lost over half the industry. At some point, you know, your bank is going to shut you down if you don't shut it down yourself. Do you have any stats in terms of how big the uh, either overall or in a, specifically in a state like Mississippi, how much acreage was devoted to catfish farming at the peak and how much it's uh, come down to now? In Mississippi, uh, they had about 110,000 acres of water catfish production in 2002. 2003. Uh, today, they're down to 35,000 acres from Mississippi. So they went from 111,000 acres in 2002 to 35,000 acres uh, in 2016. Arkansas, Tracy, went from 38,000 acres down to less than 5,000 acres. So uh, oh, wow. it, it, people were just, you know, they just couldn't hang on. They had to do something. So what exactly happened to the farmers? And I'm assuming, you know, you were talking about um, the bubble at its heyday. You were talking about parties and lots of money flowing. So I'm assuming there were some people who made, you know, a great fortune from catfish farming. What happened to them when the bubble burst? The agents had to get out. And, uh, you know, some of them had other means of income. They were, they were growing a row crop. You know, the grain prices got very high. They could still make money off of that. Uh, the processing plants probably fared a little better than the farmers did in those days. The, I know of one case where an owner of a catfish plant in Alabama made, in the worst year for the farmer in 25 years, he made $6 million that year and actually turned around and, and sold the company a year or two later and uh, made a bunch more money. Uh, so there was still some money to be made, but for the, for the rank-and-file farmer, they, they just had to get out. Some of them lost homes, you know, and the banks took over, some of them. Uh, some of the uh, farms were converted to uh, wetland reserve programs where they could make a little money off of that to try to the goal was to return the, the land to its original purpose, and the government would pay a little bit for that. Uh, some were turned into hunting, hunting clubs and stuff. And then, but yeah, some of them are just sitting there, nothing. They're grown up in weeds, and uh, it just it's just kind of sad to see it like that. That is a uh, that is a depressing image. It kind of reminds me of uh, you know some of the crazy boom time housing developments right before the uh, housing crash in Florida and California, and then revisited. That's, that's true. And, 2009, 2010, in a state of uh, disarray with weeds and uh, decay and everything. We got to uh, you know wrap it up here, but finally, so what's the state of the industry right now? Is it growing? Is it stable? I mean, you're still chronicling, you're still chronicling catfish at the Catfish Journal. So, what is the equilibrium that it's settled in at? Well, it took roughly ten years to work out this 
oversupply of fish and for people to make the exit from the business. I'd say about 2012, things began to stabilize. At, at its peak, the industry processed 660 million pounds. And around 2012, it was like a little over 300 million pounds. And since 2012, it's sort of gyrated between 300 million pounds and maybe 330 million pounds. So with a tight supply, prices have come up for the farmer and the processor. So there's a there's a, an equilibrium that's been achieved at this point. I don't think we'll see uh, much growth. You might see a little bit. I'm hoping that you won't see it go down any further. Uh, there are a few farms that are operated by some. They're, they're all family-owned. And in the family business, if there's nobody to come along behind you to take it over, you basically shut it down. Mm. And uh, there's a little bit of that that's going on, too. Mike, I have one more quick question. Um, I don't like fish, but I know Joe does, and uh, I'm sure some of our listeners do. Where's the best place in the South to eat catfish? <laughs> I don't know if I can jump into that. <laughs> Too controversial. Taylor Gross is a great spot. There are places all over. As, and I, I leave in the Middorf story of the book, which, which probably has introduced catfish to more people because it's the gateway in New Orleans. Um, so uh, there are so many great places. And some, some are out, out Wait, what's, the what's the name of the place in New Orleans again? Uh, well, Middendorf. You know, I talked about them in the book. They, they, it's, uh, and you might not have got to that point, but uh, it's, it's, out, it's north of New Orleans on Interstate 55 in Manshack, Louisiana, a very famous place that opened in 1934. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and it's uh, it, it, they have special thin fried catfish that that is wonderful. But Trace, let me mention something about not liking fish. <laughs> oh no! Americans are not fish eaters. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's part of the problem. Compared to most every country in the world, Americans are at the, at the low end of the scale on eating fish. For example, we eat roughly fifteen pounds. Per capita, that's everything. That's shrimp, tuna, catfish, uh, everything. Just for example, Germany is more than twice that amount, uh, probably about 35 pounds per capita annually. Uh, and then you get into other countries, uh, they're much higher. Uh, in Asia, uh, Japan is about 120 pounds per capita. So, you know, if people ate one more pound of fish per year in the U.S., That'd be a game changer. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully today's episode does a little bit in furthering America's increased consumption of fish. Mike McCall, the editor of the Catfish Journal and the author of Catfish Days from Belzona to the Big Apple. Thank you so much for joining us on the Odd Lots podcast. Fascinating story. Really interesting book. And I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. So, Tracy, I think we really have to do an Odd Lots road trip to Middendorf's in uh, oh. Manchac, Louisiana. Oh, I am Don't so there. I, I will even eat fried catfish in order to You know, that. have you had fried catfish? 
Because a lot of, like, I have family members who don't yeah. like fish, but they totally make an exception for fried catfish because it's not fishy when you eat yeah. it. It's, you know, it's like, it's just good fried food. I think, like, for me, the thing about fish, it's more the idea. It's more the, mm. like, scaly, slimy fishies yeah. that you are eating. Um, catfish isn't like that, so. Well, um. <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to get over it. Uh, you All know, right. I did well, go to your house, so you'll you'll have to invite me over um, for more fish at your place. Sounds good. But also, I do really like that story because it makes me think that there's probably numerous sort of booms and bubbles and gold rushes and whatever you want to characterize it as sort of that we don't we never hear about. We know about the big ones, whether it's you know stocks or internet. Uh, the internet bubble or even Beanie Babies. But I suspect there's just numerous more out there for the finding. Yeah, you know what I was thinking about while he was talking about catfish? Um, do you remember a couple years back, there was a lot of talk about buying alpacas and farming oh, yeah, alpacas? Yeah. Do you, like That, was, that yeah. was the only sort of agricultural equivalent that I could think about. But the thing I love about all these bubbles is the psychology is, you know, it varies a little bit, but it's almost always the same. It's, you know, people get kind of lured in by the promise of higher returns. And eventually there's so much money pouring in that you reach some sort of tipping point. Um, right. I guess when you get to the tipping point, that's that's the most interesting thing, right? And if you get the timing right, then you can become a millionaire. And if you get the timing wrong, then you lose everything. Also, how awesome do you think like a catfish party was in the eighties? <laughs> like, don't you, like I just want to be at one of those parties so bad right now. So you've read the book, right? Are are there photos in the book? I want to see photos of a catfish party. There are more farms, photos of farms, not so much uh, photos of the parties themselves. But I, in yeah. my mind, they're the most fun parties in the world. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see that. All right. Well, on that note, uh, so Tracy, you have a standing offer to uh, come eat uh, catfish anytime. I'll, uh, I'll make some. But uh, until then, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow our fabulous producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. 
so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more.